You're listening to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. GGTMC listeners, this is Rupert. This week I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to speak with Mr. Larry Karaszewski, uh, who I'm a big fan of. And um, just to give you an idea who Larry is, if you don't know, I don't know how you wouldn't, but um, he, I'm going to take a little something from his bio on Trailers from Hell. Uh, he's writing, directing, and producing partners with Scott Alexander. The two are best screenplay Golden Globe winners for The People vs. Larry Flint and were nominated by the Writers Guild for the cult favorite Ed Wood. Other credits include writing Milos Forman's film Man on the Moon, adapting the Stephen King story 1408, and producing Paul Schrader's Autofocus. Um, Larry is a you know hugely accomplished and talented screenwriter who, um, like I said, I really admire his work a lot. Uh, he's one of the gurus over at Trailers from Hell, and uh, I love his taste in films. And he's done a lot of really interesting trailers from hell over there. Um, to name a few, um, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, Pretty Poison, Real Life, Skidoo, um, Sweet Sugar, uh, The Last of Sheila, The Loved One, The Mechanic, The President's Analyst, uh, Who's Minding the Mint. Uh, highly recommend that you go over and check out um, his trailers from hell uh, entries. Um, anyway, he was very generous with his time, and we talked about his um, getting into screenwriting and his process along with uh, a lot of, you know, his favorite films. And um, I really had a great time talking to him. So hope you enjoy. Thank you very much for doing this, first of all. You're welcome. Actually, you know, it's one of the things where I've, I've clicked on your site many times, and, uh, you know, I haven't always put it together that it was, that it was you, you know. I, I like your site very much. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm a big fan of yours as well. It, it seems like um, we have sort of a similar wheelhouse um, mm-hmm. as far as movies we like, and I love your, like, you saw on my list, uh, there's a bunch of trailers from Hell that you've done that I love, and anyway, um, so how did you first get into screenwriting? Um... I grew up in Indiana, south of Indiana, and um, it's really kind of odd, but I always, for some reason, knew I wanted to be a filmmaker uh, since I was about eight or nine years old. Um, and my mom was a waitress. My dad worked in a, a, a factory, you know, and I'm the first person in my family ever to go to college or anything like that. So it wasn't like I was remotely... Um, I wouldn't say encouraged. I mean, they didn't never discourage me. That was that was the blessing that they never said, uh, you know, you can't do this. Um, but there was certainly it was it was sort of science fiction to me to think that I could. Um, but I was, and so but, but very early on I started making like super eight movies when I was like ten, eleven years old, and I sort of um, I made uh, my parents got divorced and my dad didn't know what to do with a little kid, so he would take me to the drive-in on weekends and fall asleep and drink beer and I would watch. You know, in the 1970s, that was my film education. Oh, wow. Seeing, you know, three movies, uh, you know, a night at the, at the drive-in. So, I, um, uh, and I got very lucky, uh, I don't know if you learned all this stuff, but I was very lucky, uh, in high school, there was a television show in Indiana called Beyond Our Control, which was, uh, sort of a Second City TV, a Saturday Night Live kind of show, 
uh, but it was written and directed and starred um, uh, teenagers. Um, and this actually was before Saturday Night Live and Second City TV. Um, but it was a it was a, a comedic sketch show. And it was very well done, and I managed to get on that show. And um, uh, you know, that's really where I learned to to be a filmmaker in the sense that. You know, on Monday and Tuesday nights, we would write the scripts. On Wednesdays, we would cast. On Thursday, uh, we would rewrite. On Friday, we'd build a set. On Saturday, we'd shoot. On Sunday, they would air. And it was a half-hour show on an NBC affiliate there. Wow. Um, so, so you, you really saying, learned... You were how old at that point? Uh, I did it from 14 to 18. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Very cool. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So you learned... So, um, um, you know, you really learned how to get shit done. Because I think a lot of people who are writers... You know, you had that luxury of oh, I'll finish it later. Or I'm still thinking about things. Or you know, when you when you were when you learned very early on to be on that schedule, and you learned very early on, you know, sometimes mistakes are turn out to be good. Some things you really love turn out to be terrible. You know, so you learn you get all that process out. Wow. And um, so I, I I did that, and then I came out to um, actually there were several people on that TV show from Indiana that, that uh, came out and became uh, very successful screenwriters um, and are still my friends today like Daniel Waters who wrote Heathers oh wow um, you know Dave Simpkins who wrote Adventures in Babysitting Chris Webb who wrote Toy Story 2 um, so we, we have a nice little little clique of guys from that TV show uh, um, uh, there's even actors like uh, Dean Norris from uh, the show Breaking Bad uh, he was on that TV show. So, cool. um, so then I came out to USC, and I was going to USC film school, and my my roommate was Scott Alexander. Ah, and okay. We saw something in the paper one day, and we thought oh, that would be uh, that's kind of a tragic story, but we thought oh that could be funny if it was done differently. So we, we on a whim we sort of wrote a script our senior year, and it sold like two weeks after we graduated, and we kind of hadn't stopped working since. Wow. So, which now which script was that? That was a movie that never got made um, called Home Records, Home Records okay. which was about a thief that gets injured while he's robbing a house and sues the homeowners for negligence and winds up taking everything they have, you know, through the legal system. Yes, very, very funny. That's cool. All right. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, but, but it set a template for for, for uh, a little bit, even though it was a broad comedy, that uh, there was, it was actually based on a, on a thing we saw in the newspaper. So it was based on a true story where a kid was robbing a school and he fell through a skylight and really got injured. And it was a you know, and and uh, the, the school board had been had been told a thousand times to fix that skylight and all this other kind of stuff. So it was, it was this, this like complex legal case and a little bit of tragedy. The kid the kid couldn't walk, all this other kind of stuff. And but we looked at it and said. We took a true story and sort of made it our own and made it a funny, a funny movie. No, that's you. you no, know, you seem to. You guys seem to draw a lot of um, inspiration from real life people yeah. and whatnot. What is it about those stories that, that get your attention? I guess. Um, you know, it's the old cliche that truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Um, and and I think particularly in in, in movies, um, uh, you know, you you you. The movies tend to be sort of cookie cutter and sort of, you know, you can put the stuff in, you know, uh, all the plots tend to be the same. And the way you can get around that a little bit is uh, by basing something on a true story because you can say, oh, it really happened. You know, a movie like Ed Wood would never 
spring from uh, fiction because, you know, he would make, you know, he'd have to learn his lesson and, and make a good movie at the end or, he would, you know, whatever. But because it really happened, you can sort of get away with a lot more. Yeah. And so we, we embrace that. And so that's also, like, even the things that are so, even Problem Child is based on a, a, an article we saw about a, a couple that were suing an adoption agency because they gave him a bad kid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were able to just take that and not, not do the horror bad seed version but make the comic, comedy version. But it was at least taken from the idea that, oh my God, can you believe what's really happening? Yeah. Now, so what, what drew you to, to Ed Wood? What was what got your attention? I mean, obviously, it's just an amazing story, but... Um, well, we were in college uh, during the whole early 80s, you know, the Medved Brothers, bad movie festival stuff, and so there was always a little bit of um, stuff trickling out about Ed Wood, and whenever we would read these things... Uh, it sounded so fascinating, you know, and particularly his, his relationship with Bella Lugosi. And, um, uh, you know, I actually, uh, you know, when I was going to the drive with my dad, I, uh, you know, they, they were still running in the mid-1970s, Bride of the Monster at the drive-in and things like that. Oh, so it was really, that was a very odd thing. I remember at the time being a little kid saying, why are they showing this old black-and-white monster movie that clearly some film distributor in the Midwest had a, you know, had a 35 millimeter copy and was just trying to unload it. Um, <laughs> but, um, and Scott even, as a, as a, there was a class we had where you had to make up film proposals for documentaries. And he had, he, he had done a proposal for a movie called The Man, the Man in the Angora Sweater. Nice. Uh, and it was a the documentary about Ed. And, um, you know, we always thought it would be a great movie. We and I think we early on talked about it. And we were, you know, and, and we always knew it was going to be sort of the relationship between Ed and Bella. Um, but you know, who would who would make a, such a fringe kind of movie? And then we uh, became successful screenwriters, and and sort of uh, uh, you know, the problem child movies came out, and they were they were just totally like ripped apart by the by critics, and and they made a lot of money, <clears throat> but we were sort of typecast as guys who wrote problem child movies and and we'd go in and pick an idea and people say, oh my God, what a great idea for a movie, but you're the guys who wrote problem child. You, you know, we, we won't hire you to write it. Oh, wow. Uh, so we were, this is kind of fucked. Um, <laughs> so we said, well, maybe we started our careers out wrong. We, you know, we had done, you know, we were successful, but we weren't successful in a, necessarily in an area that we thought we were, you know, we were, we, we, we wanted to be. Um, and uh, we said, well, let's, why don't we go back and we kind of restart our careers and just do like a small independent movie and um, let's write that Ed Wood film. And, and so uh, we did. And uh, But right about the same time, another friend of ours from film school is having a bit of an existential moment also, a guy named Michael Lehman. Uh -huh. He just came off of a movie called Hudson Hawk. Which was like you know, a gigantic catastrophe, and uh, we sort of we called him up and said, "Come on, wouldn't it be funny the the writers of Problem Child and the director of Hudson Hawk get together and make that movie about the worst filmmaker of all time?" <laughs> you know, we we would you know we're, yeah, they say write what you know, and this is what we know, um, and he totally got it, and so uh, because of that though, I mean what it really did was all the stuff about Edward before us always made fun of Edward. Always made him a subject of ridicule. And I think because of the problem child experience, uh, 
we knew uh, how difficult it is to make a good movie and, and uh, you know, how much effort goes into making a bad movie. And so we were able to sort of look at Ed's plight differently and look at him with sympathy and say, you know, oh, my God, he's, he was, you know, he was trying. And so that's, I think that's why that movie is so full of, you know, sort of the passion of filmmaking. Because Scott made a, worked as a PA in a bunch of low-budget horror films. I, I was in that Beyond a Control thing. So we sort of knew the, the sort of the uh, joys of um, of low-budget filmmaking and the joys of amateur filmmaking in the sense that, you know, you've got people who work, when you're doing that kind of stuff, you're working like, you know, 18 hours a day and you're working for no money and or deferments and all that kind of crap. And, the, you know, the, the stuff that you're making is crap, but you're doing it because you love movies so much. You just want to be a part of it so much. And so we embrace that thing about Ed, that he loved movies so much that almost the product at the end of the day uh, wasn't important. It was the idea of making the films and making people around them feel like they're making something. And so we really ran with that idea. That's cool. I mean, how did so? So you said Michael Lehman was involved, and how did it end up with Tim Burton? Um, uh, when we finished the script, actually, no, when we finished the treatment. Uh, Michael uh, said, "You know, he was totally into it." But he's like, um, uh, "You know, maybe if we got like." Tim Burton's name on it as a presenter or something it'd be very easy for us to get a couple million dollars and because also the person who, who produced a couple of Michael's movies is now running Tim Burton's company ah okay um and so we gave uh her the treatment uh she passed along to Tim and Tim totally flipped out and he thought it was fantastic and um Michael was about to go, I think, make a movie called Airheads at the time, and uh, and Tim was supposed to make a movie called Mary Riley, um, but Tim was like, oh my God, I, this isn't something I really want to direct, and, 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 and Michael was fantastic. Michael said, you know, I'm cool with, I've got, I'm going to make this other movie, and I'm cool with switching places, I'll produce a new direct, but not if it's going to be a, a development deal, not if it's just going to be, you know, one of your projects. If it's sincerely your next movie, that's cool. If it, if it turns into anything else, then I get it back. And Tim said, sure, but at that point there was no script. So Scott and I wrote, wrote the script for Ed Wood in six weeks. So Tim had to make some kind of decision on uh, um, on Mary Riley. And uh, we, it came out, I mean, it was really a first draft, and um, it was long. It was like 140 pages or something, but we just thought we had to get it in. We turned it in, and... Um, and Tim called back and said, uh, literally two days later, it was uh, the best phone call we ever had. Uh, it was uh, on my answering machine. It was just like, um, I, I read the script. I'm, I'm dropping out of Mary Riley. I'm going to make this movie. Wow. And I have no notes. I'm originally so much for the first draft. I don't want to change anything. I don't want to fuck around. Let's just go make this movie. And so Tim, the, Ed Wood is our first draft. Oh, my gosh. There was, never, there was never a second draft. There were certain production management kind of changes. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, we cut some sequences for, 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 uh, for money, and we um, uh, we expanded uh, the Bunny Breckenridge part when Bill Murray became involved. But there was no actual note notes. Wow, that's just... <laughs> have you had anything like that since? No. And I don't know if I've had anything like that before either. Wow. A couple, I mean, there's only, I think there's only a couple times that people have had their first drafts arrested. Wow. And that, that's just such a beautiful, serendipitous thing all around. And on top of which, it's a fantastic movie. You know, uh, between that and, and Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I always say those are my favorite Tim Burton films, bar none. Um, 
So, I mean, that's just so, <laughs> it's just so neat that it all came together like that. That's just, Yeah, wow. no, thank God it's good. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's a fantastic. But how do you guys decide in the case of Ed Wood or Larry Flint or, you know, uh, Andy Coffin, how do you decide, like, what to keep in, what to embellish? How does that work with your process? Um, well, that's the, the art of it is really the, uh, you know, it's the shaping of it. Um, uh, and that's why I think a lot of biopics are kind of terrible. They, they just include things and they don't really shape it. We really look at it as, you know, it sounds stupid or obvious. We look at it as a movie. We say, you know, what would, uh, you know, um, uh, and it's all about, it's really, you know, uh, it's about leaving stuff out and, and combining things and moving things together so it actually works as a real film. I mean, we don't like to, um, to emphasize time passing. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of biopics are sort of cradles to the grave, or, um, you know, they, or they move around quite a bit. Like, oh, his first wife was here, and then he got divorced, and he moved over here, and then, you know, four years later this happened, and, and, and we, we think, whatever, that doesn't happen in a, in a regular movie. It's all sort of happens in, in, in movie time. And so we, we definitely embrace that. Um, uh, and it's just, it depends on each other. It's really sort of what, what interests us. And it always helps when you think of um, a bigger theme that sort of can hang the movie around. And, you, and if you think of how the movie's going to end, um, you know, in the case of, say, something like The People vs. Larry Flint, um, it was like, you know, we always ask the question, if you're making a movie about someone, why, why should this person be remembered? And the reason why Larry Flint, if he's remembered, would be, you know, one, he may be most, you know... Uh, out there, porn magazine in the nineteen seventies, and two, he, um, um, you know, was this landmark freedom of speech uh, decision, the Falwell versus Flint, uh, at the Supreme Court. So, uh, by making that decision, we thought we would end the film with the Supreme Court decision. All of a sudden, working backwards, that starts structuring the movie. That the Supreme Court, um, uh, the plaintiff doesn't speak. Your lawyer has to speak. So we looked at the uh, the lawyer's um, speech in front of the Supreme Court, and it was quite elegant and and just uh, you know it was really lovely. And this thought, oh, that, that's a great soliloquy for the, near the end of the movie. But once you you know you're basically saying that you're not giving the your protagonist the last speech of the film. So what that means is, oh my God, that lawyer part's got to be an important part. So you know you've got to build that lawyer part up throughout the whole film. I mean, Larry Flint had a bunch of. Um, you know, whenever you you're getting prosecuted in different different um, uh, states, you have to have lawyers from that state. So Larry had many different lawyers over the years. But we can, you know, we tend not to do um, uh, characters that are combined characters that much. But this we felt was kind of important that we made the uh, the Alan Eisman character sort of one lawyer, and uh, so we made that a very important part. And, um, it's those kind of decisions, you know, and so, and then, and then, then because the movie's ending with the free speech decisions, you sort of really emphasize the sort of the free speech moments in Larry's life. Wow. Um, you know, uh, uh, so that's the kind of thing that, 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 you know, your theme sort of shapes your, um, your decisions you make, what you leave in and what you leave out. Now, the problem is, you know, what happens is I think most biopics end, end up being, at some point, 
someone out of the past comes up and says, oh, you, you this movie's full of lies, or, you know, not just my movies, every every movie, uh, you know, even the King's Speech had people saying, oh, full of lies, he's a Nazi sympathizer, <laughs> whatever. Um, the, um, uh, because you're trying to put someone's life into hours, you can't include everything. So, you know, you're going to leave something out. When you leave something out, it's going to piss somebody off somewhere. Yeah. Or if someone wants to, you know, bad match a movie, it's a very easy way to uh, to do it. Um, but that's just the, the nature of the beast. Yeah. No, I, that totally makes sense. Um, I just, it's really neat to hear the mechanics as far as how you guys do that. That's, that's just so, it's logical and everything you're saying just totally makes sense as far as the structuring backwards and whatnot. That's just a really yeah. neat peek behind the curtain for me, part personally. But anyway, right. I mean, I'll, I'll do that real quickly with, with Ed Wood, for example. Ed Wood is, um, you know, uh, was one of the reasons he'll be remembered for. He'll be remembered because he's the, the, he made the worst film of all time. And he had this weird relationship with Bela Lugosi, very loving relationship with Bela Lugosi. Those are probably the two reasons, you know. So, uh, you know, and maybe, you know, you could make a case of, you know, sort of all the all the low-budget porn shit of the 1970s, but that, that we thought that was so depressing. So we wanted with the, uh, the you know, uh, the worst movie maker of all, the worst film of all time, that's, that's his triumph. So you end with, you know, Planet Night from Outer Space, and uh, Planet Night from Outer Space is the movie he made, you know, uh, you know, out of clips of dead Bella that he took earlier, so it becomes the whole movie becomes shaped by the Bella Lugosi relationship. So then, easy, you know, then movie structure questions are easily answered. Page ten, he meets Bella Lugosi. Page thirty, he you know makes his first film. You know, uh, page ninety, Bella dies. Can he make another movie without Bella? You know, I mean things, yeah. things like that. Just sort of, you know, I wouldn't say they fall into place. You have to be working and thinking and know. You have to do the research and know your material, know the person you're doing. Once you, but once you make the decision what the movie's about, you know, hopefully things start clicking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, how long do you guys research when you? Not to get so carried away on this, but I'm just fascinated here. <clears throat> yeah, I thought we were going to talk about cult films. We could totally um, let's jump into that in just a second here. <laughs> but no, we research. Um, it depends. We do a lot. Um, you know. Uh, we, you know, sometimes it's stuff we already know. Edward, we really, really knew pretty well. Um, Larry Flint, even Larry Flint, we knew a lot of stuff because all that Supreme Court stuff was happening while we were in college. And, and uh, you know, any call, I mean, a lot of, you know, there are people we have a great deal of affection for. They also, though, were people that weren't, you know, uh, very well documented. There wasn't a book about Larry Flint. There wasn't a book about Andy Kaufman. You know, we, we sort of have to act like journalists. Um uh, so, uh, you know, you, you basically do, we, we would say, we do several months of research. Gotcha. Um, maybe sometimes more. You do, you do it until you feel like, uh, you're, you're postponing, if you're doing more research, you're postponing. At a certain point, you know, you know the stuff. Gotcha. And you realize, that I'm going to this microfiche just because I don't feel like writing today. <laughs> No, that, that makes sense too. Um, all right. Well, last question uh, regarding the screenwriting stuff. Do, the Marx Brothers project is that? I know we've talked. To, I've emailed you about this before. Is that in anywhere in a place where it might actually happen at some point? Uh, no. It's so funny that people we get asked about that that project more than almost any other project, um, and it's actually been dead for quite a long That's time. That's what I uh, we love it. It's, a, it's a, you know, it's different in that it's the only great man biography we've ever written. We have a very, we have a strict policy of only writing about sort of fringe characters. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we, we say, you know, biopics of movie of people who don't deserve a biopic. Um, <clears throat> but, um, 
the Marsh Brothers certainly do, but strange enough, because they certainly do, that's the only one that we can't get, seem to get made. Um, it's a very, you know, it's it's got all the brothers. It's got, you know, it, it's a period piece. It, to, to make the movie yeah. right, it's almost, you almost need a Gangs of New York kind of budget. Wow. Because they, they, you know, they're never in one place. They're always going from one train station to another train station to another, you know, theater, vaudeville theater. It's a, it's, it's a period movie that, you know, yes, Groucho is probably the lead, but there's a, you know, Gummo's got a great part. Zebo's got a great part. You know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of it. And, um, you know, it probably would have worked best as sort of a, you know, multi-night, you know, miniseries at some point. Yeah, I was going to say HBO yeah. maybe or something like that. Yeah, maybe. Someday, whatever. We, we you know, um, uh, you know, we, we need someone, someone out there who, who loves the Marsh Brothers to rescue it. But right now, it's not, uh, right now it's not going to be happening. Well, hopefully it does at some point. Um, but Thank anyway, you. sorry, moving to, you know, your... The other part of this conversation, which is, uh, you know, you've been a guru at Trailers from Hell for a while, and you've done a bunch of commentaries, really cool stuff. Um, how do you choose uh, the movies that you cover there? Um, it's some kind of combination of um, something I love, something I feel has been um, uh, overlooked, Usually, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, and, and some uh, you can bounce back and forth between, you know, obviously Nashville is not overlooked, so, uh, and I did Nashville, but, you know, um, but most of the time it's something I love and something I feel is overlooked, you know, uh, and, and lately I've been really trying to even um, go for pretty obscure stuff because I've stumbled onto a 35mm trailer buying on eBay, uh-huh. and so I'm able to find stuff that isn't actually available. On, uh, on DVDs and things like that. So, so, so who's mining the mint? That's your thirty-five millimeter trailer. Yes. Oh wow. That's I. That was really excited that you did that one because that's a movie I really like a lot, and it's ridiculous that it's not on DVD. And I'm hoping that you guys draw enough attention that these things start to you know pop up a little more. Yeah, that's sort of you know uh, I don't know whether that actually happens or not, but it, but um, you know that that's my goal is to sort of. You know, I've been done, done a bunch of these lately. The Little Foss and Big Halsey, and and uh, you know, there's a new DVD of the trailer from Hell coming out that I do. Uh, Frank Perry's Last Summer. Yeah. There's a bunch of these movies that are just sort of uh, you know, uh, not quite forgotten, but as much as just like not available anywhere. And by you know, uh, by sort of keep my eyeball on that, on that, on, on eBay and, buy, and starting to actually buy trailers. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's allowed me to do things that are a little more obscure. Yeah, no, the, the last summer is definitely one. I've heard sort of rumblings here and there that I, I don't know if Warner Archives would be the place. That's, that's the rumbling, but I, the rumbling so far has not been um, backed up by anything whatsoever. Uh, there was a crappy, not crappy, but there was a cut version that was shown on um, PCM, yeah. on PCM. And, uh, you know, I also do... Um, Evenings at the American Cinema Tech, yes. where I sort of host these uh, these filmmaker nights, and um, you know, I, I've <laughs> I've had Bruce Davidson on hold for uh, a couple of years now because uh, I, I think he's fantastic. But you know, it's, we want to show last summer, and just you know, we cannot find a print. Oh, that's so terrible. I love him. Yeah. I love him in uh, Mother Jugs and Speed too. He's so good. In, uh, he's always good. Small he's part. always good. You no, know, you're right. Absolutely, he is always good for sure. Um, <laughs> So you're a big um, Frank Perry fan, then? Yes, I mean, and that's and we talk about movies that aren't available on DVD. That is just they're just bloody criminal. Oh. The fact that you know most of his stuff 
isn't. You know, he might be the the most uh, uh, you know um, uh, underappreciated American director from that from that sort of early seventies time period. I mean, I, I, I think there's one great movie after another, um, and you know, it's not you can't find them. Uh, well, it's a, you know, I showed uh, you know, it's like I showed uh, Mad Housewife yeah. uh, and had Richard Benjamin down, um, which I think is, I think that's a masterpiece. I think Last Summer's a masterpiece. Um, some of those earlier ones are great, like David and Lisa, and certainly the swimmer. The swimmer is fantastic. Uh, even though he, he got you know he got recut on that. Yeah, um, that's true. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know whatever it's, 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 uh, and that is also. The dilemma of the independent filmmaker, to be quite honest, yeah. Frank Perry. Uh, I think Frank and, and it, what a, I think a lot of credit goes to Eleanor Perry. She was the, his wife and screenwriter. Um, I think once they get divorced, uh, you know, Frank Perry's movies sort of drift off a bit. Um, but because Eleanor was a, just a really, really great screenwriter. Um, that's uh, sort of like the but they were they they sort of they they, they I think they were independently uh, financed most of these movies were independently financed and what happens is when your movies independently financed nobody owns them peg or some you know, or some some company that doesn't really not in the movie business owns your negative so there's no one looking out for it if you made a movie with Warner Brothers in 1967 the bottom line is it's the negative isn't the Warner Brothers vault. Okay. Or you know, I mean, it's it's uh, there are other obvious places where you can find it when you do in the, when you put together the movie independently, you know. So you you have someone who oh I own I own three movies. Well, there's nothing you can do with three movies, and uh, you know, so some law firm owns it. Or, or you know, I'm not saying specifically about uh, the Perry's movies. So I don't know the exact cases, but that's where that's you know that's the dilemma of independent filmmaking is 20 years from now, where the hell is it? Oh, who yeah. owns it? Although know, you got the money from twenty dentists in in Rhode Island, all right, and then you know, uh, uh, well, they're they're now they're dead, and their kids are married and got divorced, and they have kids, and so who who owns the movie? Oh man, it's shit you don't think about when you're actually just desperate to try to get your two million dollars to make a movie. But um, you know, that's one of the that's that's one of the reasons why you know uh, major studios sort of you know uh, over time they they just keep you know. They 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 keep they they're in the business of exploiting their back catalog, yeah. so they can always keep putting it out. Yeah, well, that's really sad because there must be so many casualties to that sort of situation over the yeah. nearly you know hundred plus years of whatever. It, that's just really sad. Anyway, yep. Um, can you talk about a few films? I mean, obviously you mentioned the drive-in stuff with your dad, and what are some that when you were younger you saw that made a big impression on you and maybe made you into a film fan kind of thing? Um. Probably a movie. I'll, I'll mention two. Um, I think the movie. I started, like I said, I started seeing movies really a lot when I was really little. Um, and, and I think that as um, anyone who's young, you see movies, you sort of you know there's a director, you know there's a writer, or whatever, but you don't really know, have a conscious feeling of who the filmmaker is behind that. Even though even though I was quite film literate, I could talk about movies and directors and all that kind of crap. Um, but I really think. Um, the conversation Coppola's movie oh, wow. was the movie where I really put it together. That there is there is someone behind the camera shaping things. There is somebody. There's a filmmaker, and uh, I, you know whatever I thought. But when that movie came out, seventy four, early seventy four. Yeah, so I must have been twelve or thirteen, something like that. I've been that was probably yeah, 
I've been twelve or thirteen, and um, um, you know, I that was whenever you were in twelve and thirteen. That's when you started putting all that stuff together, and and I, that movie made a big impression on me as being like you know more than just a movie. Yeah. Um, you know, more than just entertainment. Uh, you know, there's there's there, there's there's a thinking there's a thinking person behind that camera. So that movie made a big impression on me. And another movie, uh, a little bit, a couple years later, uh, um, Cooley High, ah. uh, which was a, a sort of a the black exploitation version of um, American Graffiti, but I actually think it's better than American Graffiti. Um, uh, it was filmed around Chicago. And um, it was probably the first movie uh, that I saw that sort of looked like where I lived, you know, <laughs> and felt like, you know, I could really, you know, identify with the characters. And, and it, 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 I, I recognized the spaces. So that, that made a big impression on me. Huh. I saw so many movies as a, as a young kid. It's so funny. Sometimes someone asks me, oh, have you seen this film? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw that movie. That's, that's a great one. And I realized, wait a second, I, I saw the movie when I was nine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm finding more and more lately that those movies that I saw when I was younger, I just, I know I've seen them, but coming back to them is this whole new experience, which has been... Oh, it's always a new experience. Yeah, like, well, that's oh, true. Yeah. Absolutely. But what's always weird about something like that, though, is sometimes you're watching it, and, you know, like, Jesus Christ, I, yeah, but then you'll see a scene, and you're like, oh, my God, of course, I, the, the scene just, you know, 40 years later, after just watching it once, you uh, you totally say, oh, it's, oh, yeah, of course. That's where you get sit by the dog. Yeah, that made such a big impression on my head, you know. Yeah, it's so neat. I love that process yeah. and everything about yeah. it. Um, can you talk about, we've sort of been going all around this, but a few films that you want to see on DVD. Obviously, last summer we were just talking about DVD that haven't been put out, you know, maybe won't be put out. Maybe those casualties of those uh, independent film financing things. Yeah, last summer's, you know, the, the Frank Perry movies are the real um the real, uh, you know, tragedy. Um, um, you know, there's a, whatever, like I said, I, I got, you know, all these, um, uh, uh, a lot of my trailers hells, uh, from hells are movies that aren't, aren't available. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's, uh, you know, and, and so that's sometimes that's what I try to do when I screen a movie to the cinema tech. Like I screened, um, the Italian language cut of uh, Marlon Brando's Burned. Oh. Uh, the Caravo movie. And uh, that's the kind of the additional, like, 20 minutes to it or something. And that was fantastic. Um, you know, uh, but in terms of the, the DVD releases, well, it's so funny because DVD releases now are sort of, uh, it's a little bit of who cares, you know. <laughs> it's like, it's really funny I, I, that you just, actually, I think, is, are you the person who does the, uh, the Netflix uh, list. Yeah, I do a lot of those. Yeah, my blog. yeah, the uh, yeah. So I mean, net, it's always great when you discover stuff on Netflix that just you know aren't, isn't available anywhere else. Yeah. Um, like what I watched recently, Deadhead Miles, yeah, the Cody so Malik thing. You know, stuff like that that just it just totally um, you know, sort of fell through uh, almost all video cracks. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, so there's a lot of stuff on Netflix. In fact, I. Uh, but, my problem with Netflix now is that I don't actually watch the movies on Netflix. All I do is search. Yeah, same here. <laughs> it's a lot of... <laughs> oh, I found this. Now I've got 500 movies in my queue, and I will never get to any of them. Exactly. <laughs> but, There's oh, my so God. No, but, but, but that's the, 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 you know, this that, I think, in a nutshell, is um, 
fought the DVD market until they fell off the planet. You know, in terms of like, you know, DVDs, no one buys DVDs anymore. And it's, not, it's not so much, I think, quality or anything like this. It's that people were buying DVDs and not necessarily watching them. You know, I've got an insane large DVD collection, but you, you know, if somebody, if you and I were talking and you told me about some crazy, you know, independent movie that, that was supposed to be great from 1968, and I, I would have, you know, ended the conversation and gone over to Amazon and probably bought it. <laughs> um, but now, instead of doing that, I can go and put it in my queue, and, you know, it, the money hasn't changed hands. Yeah. No, it changed hands if I watch it. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, sort of empty thing in the number 478 in my queue. <laughs> no, you're totally right. That's I, I have the same dilemma and the same sort of transference. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's interesting to see, you know, how that has changed in just a short period of time. But Netflix is doing a great job, and I'm really impressed, um, uh, uh, you know, with them. Um, uh, look at the there's, there's a movie that I think it was one of these DVD movies. Actually, I'll say there, there, uh, I recently did a um, <laughs> uh, Pamela Sue Martin night at uh, the American Cinematheque. She's you know whatever. She's a minor figure, but I I, I, I certainly have affection for her. Uh, and um, there's three of her films that are very very obscure. That uh, I think that she made really interesting choices in the mid '70s, making sort of not. The normal teen movies, um, and one just got put out on uh, Warner Archive called Our Time. But the one is called another one's called To Find a Man, which I think is a terrific uh, teen film from the early seventies that wasn't available wasn't available anywhere, and somehow it magically popped up on um, on iTunes. Oh. You know, and and uh, um, uh. You know, so you can you can now download on iTunes, but it was never available anywhere else. Um, and there's still there's a movie she was a much smaller part in that has never been reissued since uh, the early days of home video called uh, Buster and Billy. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'd love to take number to Buster and Billy. Have you heard any rumblings of that one coming from Sony? Uh, Is it Sony, maybe? Uh, yeah, it sounds right. It sounds like Columbia. Yeah. Maybe one of their burn-on demands? God, I hope so. That would be great. Oh, that would be a fantastic thing. My great performance I... by an actress named Joan Goodfellow in that oh, movie. She's so great, and it's and it's in that run of great uh, Jan Michael Vincent movies. Yeah. That movie, I mean, uh, my <laughs> wife and I watched it maybe two years ago. We have a, the insert poster in our bedroom, and, uh, and you know, it just brings me to tears every time. It's just such yeah, a, it's a great film. Um, film. You know what's funny about the movie is you, you, uh, you, you go on eBay and you put Buster and Billy in, and the thing that sells most on Buster and Billy on, on eBay is not the movie, not even the posters. Some guy has taken the logo from the film, uh, which doesn't include the name Buster and Billy, and makes black black T-shirts out of it. Oh, it's wow. like these weird shadows of, of thugs or something. And, Standing over and I think, them? So I think that people buy it not even knowing it has anything to do with Buster and Billy. But that's... Uh, that's uh, it's unfortunate you can't buy the film anymore, but you can buy a weird offshoot uh, <laughs> remix uh, uh, t-shirt. That's really cool. I might have to look into that actually. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a, it's a cool t-shirt. Yeah, I mean, I love that the product, the design of the poster is really, really interesting. So that's interesting yeah. that it's out there. Um, do you have any Holy Grail movies that you want to see but haven't? I'm guessing you've seen most everything you want to <laughs> see, but. Um, I've seen a lot of stuff. Um, I'm very lucky that I've actually seen things that other people haven't seen. Like I, I actually have the other side of the wind, the uh, the Orson Welles movie. And, um, so there's a lot of stuff like that that I've managed to get my hands on. Um, the um, you know there are gigantic ones with the entire planet 
hold their breath for us. I mean, like, they had a clown cried. Yeah. You know, which probably anyone would put on their list of, please let me see that movie one day. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, there's a Marx Brothers silent film that, uh, uh, that is a lost movie, um, called Humor Risk that no one's ever seen. Um, in a much different version, uh, when my dad would take me to the grindhouse in the, in the early 70s, I was very, um, uh, uh, memory was seared into me. I saw a trailer for a movie called Beware the Black Widow. Ooh. Some black and white exploitation, uh, roughy, I think, like a nudie roughy. Um, that, uh, that, uh, I, there was nudity in the trailer and it made a gigantic impression on me. <laughs> and it's one of those things where, you know, I find myself, uh, uh, you know, every six months or so, like throwing that into a search and just, bam, nothing. Um, you know, it's on, it's on IMDb, but the, uh, there's absolutely no, um, there's no, there's, I'm the only person that clicks on the page. It's a, it was written by a guy named Larry Crane and it's just, uh, you know, it's a little, it's a little, uh, crime movie of some kind, uh, from the late 60s, um, uh, that just no one's ever heard of, but I've always been searching for that, at least that trailer. I was, I was always, I thought maybe something weird would end up on a something weird trailer compilation or yeah. something, but it's, um, nowhere to be found. So, oh. any readers out there have any connection to a Larry Crane movie called Beware the Black Widow, uh, send it my way. Absolutely, we'll do if we hear about it. Um, do you have a favorite Hollywood legend at all? Um, yeah, it's so funny that that was you know that there's almost too many or yeah, something yeah. that you know. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I that, that 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 question kind of stumps me a bit because my brain all of a sudden you know becomes goes in the overload. I mean, certainly you know that's one of the great things when we did write that March Brothers script was that the March Brothers are full of tons of stories of them you know, Irving uh, Dahlberg. <clears throat> Uh, you know, keeping them waiting for hours and, and, and then deciding to take up all their clothes and, and roast uh, or a bonfire in his office and roast <laughs> potatoes. So he walks in, there's just four naked guys and, you know, roasting potatoes in the middle of his office. There's a lot of stories like that. Even even whatever, they, the Stahlberg, um, uh, you know, uh, Stahlberg really believes in audience cards and things like this. And but one of the, I guess uh, he um, had a screening of uh, at the opera and uh, the first screening and it, it, he thought it was playing fantastic and the cards came back and the cards were terrible and <laughs> he totally went against the guys like this audience is wrong this is the wrong audience we're going across they went right across the street and the same night they, they screened one more time for a different audience and the cards came back great and so he was like alright fine <laughs> <laughs> that's really see now sounds like something that would never ever happen <laughs> that's pretty, yep. yeah. that's pretty cool um, if you could have uh, another you know, plethora of answers for this, I'm sure. But if you could have lunch with any actor or director not alive, who might you choose? Yeah, it's interesting. It would probably be, you know, it would probably be one of the legendary actors of some kind, uh, you know, uh, you know, Groucho or Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart, you know, that just to, just to say you did it. Yeah. Um, strange enough, I'm, I'm, I'm against meeting your heroes. That's not, okay. you know. Every time, you know, when you meet your heroes, it always tends to be disappointing. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those things where I was, when I was younger and I'd be in a room and I'd be, oh, my God, there's some fake guy over there. I'd rush over and take their hand and talk to them and everything like this. But I found over the years um, uh, it's always kind of a little disappointing. 
So people I really look up to, I tend to, hey, whatever. I, I would, of course, love to meet them. And a lot, also, I'm a big, well, I'm a big music person in terms of like, I love rock and roll and I love um, music and everything like this. And I think it, that happens quite a bit where like, holy shit, I'm in, I'm in the room with this, this rock person that I totally worship. I'm going to go talk to them. And I always go up and talk to them and walk away saying, what a moron. <laughs> Yeah, that's got to be tough. I mean, you know, any situation where you built somebody up in your somebody or something up in your head, yeah. those expectations are tough. They're a killer, yeah. as they say. Um, yeah. And they're just people, whatever. And so, and I exactly. think actually, you know, once you once you sort of realize that, it's easy. And that's and Scott and I have been very fortunate to work with, you know, a lot of huge directors and a lot of huge actors and. Um, uh, you know, sort of once you just are, you just go and think they're just they're same as you, you know, and there's normal normal people. It's, it makes everything much easier. That makes sense. Um, do you have a favorite underrated Charles Bronson movie? I know you're a big fan of the Mechanic. You cover that on Trailers from Hell. Yeah, I love the Mechanic. I've had, you know, there's a lot of interesting Bronson stuff. Uh, off the top of my head, I would probably um. Uh, and this is much more to do with, say, the this, this screenplay than Bronson himself. But I would, I would just, I would give a shout out to um, From Noon to Three. Cool. Only because it's, um, it's a great plot, and it has a little bit to do what I do in terms of, you know, um, uh, it's about, it's about biography, really. It's about, you know, I say he's a, he's a, he's a gunfighter who. Uh, uh, who robs a bank? Um, uh, a man that's in a long time. I remember, he robs a bank and keeps a woman captive from from noon to three in any of these town. And everyone assumes that he's dead. And she writes his book, and uh, it becomes a gigantic bestseller about her relationship with this, you know, gun, this this uh, this outlaw from, and um, you know, he becomes a legendary character. And when he comes back. Um, <laughs> you know, ten years later, uh, no one believes it's him because how could you be? How could you be him? <laughs> you know, how could you? You know, that, that person did this and that person did that. And it, it's, a, it's they printed the legend, and there's no <laughs> way a, a man can can uh, can meet that legend. That's cool. No, yeah. I just want to. Have, I've been meaning to see it for some time, and I have not yet seen it. I need to see it. Yeah, um, no, it's a re- it's re- it's really well done. It's um, actually it was. It was uh, Directed and written by Frank Gilroy, who's, who's you know, doesn't seem to match up with Charles Bronson whatsoever in the sense that he, he makes little tiny character studies, like uh, desperate characters and subject with roses and things like that. So, oh. but it's a it's a it's a kind of a it's kind of a, an interesting movie to track down if you can find it. Cool. Um, what about Henry Silva? Do you have an underrated film of his? <laughs> well, it's one of those things where you know. It's hard to say underrated for Henry Silva. You know, either either you know him and love him, or you don't. This is true. This is true. Um, so I would say just because it's you know it's it's so out of its mind and it's um and it's all him as Johnny Cool. Yeah. You know, I mean, how can you how can you beat that? You can't. You know, you got Elizabeth Montgomery and Jim Backus and Joey Bishop and you know it's Kelly Wallace, Henry Davis Jr. It's just it's, you know the, I actually have the um. The soundtrack album. Oh, that's gotta be cool. You know, which is really I, I'm very lucky that um, one of my wife's, my my, my mother-in-law's best friend, um, somehow found out that I have a turntable. He's like, <laughs> "You still listen to records?" And I'm like, "Yeah." I mean, and and uh, he's a really cool guy. And, he, and um, I said, "Sure." And, and he's like, oh, "I got a bunch of soundtracks. Would you like some?" And so I said, "Sure." And so he came over and brought like ten soundtrack albums. I'm like, "Oh, these are cool. Thank you very much." He's like, "I have more. You want me to send them to you?" I said, "Sure." So literally. 
<laughs> there was a period where once a week I'd go down to my driveway and there would be a box waiting for me with like 150 soundtrack oh. albums in it. And so, uh, I mean, the collection is crazy and it just, uh, they keep, keep coming. And so I wound up having like, you know, like 700 soundtrack albums from like 1964 to 1978 or something. Oh my gosh. And one of them is Johnny Cool, which is a uh, music composing directed by Billy Mays. Oh, wow. Can't get that. Gotta be so much cool stuff in that period. Of soundtracks, yeah. it's maybe although they're reissuing a lot of stuff on CD, it seems between uh, some of the boutique labels and whatnot. But there's got to yeah. be some great stuff there. That's amazing. It's always amazing too when you find a movie that you've never heard of. Like what the hell? I thought I knew everything. What is this thing? <laughs> yeah, it's neat to come to a movie through the soundtrack. I've definitely done that yeah. a few times. You know, um, uh, I was gonna say, okay, what, what's your favorite made-for-TV movie? Made-for-TV movie. Um, you know, you're talking about like movies that haven't been on DVD. I think that's like those are probably the next if they if they have good materials. Um, that's probably the undiscovered. Those are the undiscovered gems. Yeah, because there were so many made in that in that you know particularly early '70s time period, um, and they literally don't exist. You know, you really you know you can't find them, um, and uh, it, you know, and, and a lot of it has to do with the contract where they don't you know they didn't have the rights to to put it out on home video they didn't have rights to you know um to exhibit it like i've I tried a couple times to show um uh made for tv movie at the cinematech and sometimes you can't do it cinematech has to play by the rules so um uh you know the problem is the 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 contracts with the actors and sag were um, uh, for television broadcast. So once you know you're charging admission, oh, it's wow. a totally different thing, and it actually becomes very hard to um, to uh, to get around that when you're actually on the up and up. Uh, you have to you have to sort of have a special free screening, uh, you know. Um, what, what were the movies? Um, but, there, but there was a bunch of stuff that, you know, I mean, off the top of my head, uh, the movie that made a huge impression on me was a movie called um, uh, Welcome Home to Johnny Bristol with uh, with Marty Landau. Um, it was sort of a, he was a, a, a Vietnam uh, a war vet who, uh, who was tortured in a Vietnamese prison and, and um, sort of lost his memory. But he has, you know, he remembers a little bit about his hometown. So when he comes back to the United States, he's searching for his hometown. And um, as he's searching for his hometown, he's, you know, whatever, it becomes a, uh, you know, uh, it leads to a, a great ending that I won't give away, but a very Rosebud was a sled kind of ending <laughs> uh, that, that blew me away at the time. Um, you know, it's funny that a lot of these sort of weird, twisted, uh, and, you know, night gallery-esque, uh, movies have a big following. Movies like Bad Ronald and uh, Don't Be Dark, but there's also there's a bunch of sort of like sort of light comedies done as made for TV movies. And I'd love to take another look at some of those. Um, uh, I remember really liking one called Playmates. I think it was called. And it was directed by um, um, Ted Flicker, who directed uh, uh, you know The President's Analyst, and oh. it was just you know. It was a little piece of fluff, but I remember really thinking it was an interesting movie at the time. Um, but that's, you know, when trying to get someone to show, you know, a light comedy from 1971 is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff like that. There was, um, um, one time, I think when I looked up the director of, 
of uh, Welcome Home Johnny Bristol, I, I stumbled onto he, uh, a bunch of titles, and I was like, oh my God, I remembered almost every single one of them. There was a, that he did there, it was called The Challenge, with Darren McGavin, where um, it was another sort of Vietnam War kind of thing, where he, uh, they were, the America was involved in some kind of uh, conflict with uh, some Asian country, and instead of, instead of, uh, going to full-on war, they decided to send, you know, each country selected a soldier and, and uh, threw them on an island <laughs> and had a battle royale. Wow. Um, but I haven't seen that since, you know, really cool. way back when. Um, you were mentioning the light comedies. I always think of uh, Cotton Candy, the Ron Howard uh, TV movie. Oh, don't know that one. I, I think it's it's if I remember it's Charles Martin Smith, a coming of age high school thing. Wow! Um, but uh, that's when I I got through like a bootleg source. Uh, I think it still has commercials in it if I remember. But it was pretty neat. It's sort of a not American graffiti, but like a you know he's trying to be in a band if I remember or something. Anyway, I don't know. But when you mentioned yeah. like comedy, that was the first one that came to mind for me. Um, do you have a favorite all star cast type movie? Um. Oh, I got a bunch of those kind yeah. of movies. I love all star cast movies. Um, <laughs> you know, the most insane one is probably the Oscar. Oh, good choice. Completely out of time. And that's not on DVD either. Yes. So that's another sort of, uh, I'd love to see a great print of, uh, of the Oscar, but that movie's out of its mind. Yes. Um, you know, the one I did for Trailers from Hell that I love is, uh, The Last of Sheila. Yeah. Which is a, just a terrific movie, and everybody's great in that film. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I sort of am a sucker for any movie that has, um, you know, at the bottom of the poster is a bunch of people in a box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same here. Same. No, that's a great. People, more people should see Last of Sheila for sure. It's it's an yeah, interesting. Yeah, Last of Sheila's a great one. I mean, and it's it, was it uh, was it Ross that directed that? Who directed that movie? I forget. Yeah, Herbert Ross. Herbert Ross. Yeah, that's such an yeah, interesting movie in his filmography, which I yeah. find to be. Well, well, the- the lighter. crazy thing about that movie is it's written by Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim. Yes, that's right. People got to watch your trailer from hell because it's a really neat. And I think I think that was in my favorites. If it's not, it'll be in my round two. But I I, I really liked your trailer from hell on that. It was good yeah. stuff. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins love playing very elaborate games. Yeah. And um uh and so that that movie sort of came out of them uh them playing uh, them playing games. Yeah, that's it's such a neat idea. Such a neat. You know, movie to come from that. Um, it, it, you did a trailer for Trails from Hell just recently of the, uh, on the world of Henry Orient, which is a movie I like. And um, you said you watched it several times with your daughter. And I'm just curious if there are other films along those lines you've watched with her that you can recommend for dads with daughters. I've got a young girl that I'm looking for. Oh, that's funny. Future. Um, yeah, I have a daughter and a son, and, and they're now 17 and 15. Um, wow. Okay, so you're with uh, so, me. Yeah, but I um I always would have. Uh, uh, something I called Good Movie Night, nice. which was uh, you know basically trying to get them to not have a knee jerk against black and white. So I always try to show them a black and white film or something, you know. Oh, so cool. um, you know because uh, one that I would say went over really well with both of them when they were pretty young was Night of the Hunter. Wow, cool! Because it has it has you know it's actually it's actually is a children's film. It's about yeah. two kids. Yeah. Um, but here's I'll I'll make it a uh, weird again uh, on a soapbox here in five seconds. I'm against age appropriate material, and I <laughs> okay. think that I think that is why audiences have gotten uh, worse. Yeah. Because when I'm gonna be an old man here, when we were when we were younger, 
there were only three networks. Yeah. So, you know, when you were a kid and you wanted to watch TV, you had to watch whatever was on. You couldn't go to... <laughs> so not everything you were watching was aimed at you. Yeah. It was aimed specifically at what you were capable of thinking and doing. So you had to sit there and watch Mannix with your parents. <laughs> and sure it was boring and you didn't care about... Oh, freaking Joe Mannix, but you sat there and also the case got solved and you were like, oh, that was okay. So you learned to work through it. Yeah. Where I think that because everything is so age appropriate now, they never learned to work through it. They never learned to get bored yeah. and work through it and then find something good out of it. Um, and so I, I'm a big fan of, um, I'm a big, I don't, I don't really see the harm and maybe this is once again me being when I was a kid my dad would go to sleep at a drive-in and I saw you know all these exploitation movies but that that's really that reformed me you know what I mean yeah. and so I actually think it's it was I always tried to push it and uh, you know show them things that you wouldn't necessarily show a kid even older films you know I, would, I think I showed them you know uh, Double Indemnity and Chinatown and Badlands and things like that but, but you know try to show them good movies and hopefully they'll have good taste yeah, no. you know what I mean and, and I'm actually quite proud of both of them you know my, my 15 year old son his favorite movie of all time right now is, uh, is Enter the Void <laughs> oh, which, which he saw with me, which is one of those things where he he, when he said, "Oh, Dad, I want to see this movie, Enter the Void." And I, of course, I knew a little bit about it, but I, I didn't really know how much about it. Yeah. And then we went and <laughs> and then when it, that movie's out of its mind. Yeah, it's yeah. a fantastic film, but and, and and you know, I think from the inside the vagina cam on, <laughs> you know, my son got a bath and was like, "Great to great to share that with you, Father." <laughs> No, I'm with you. Actually, I, I mean, uh, I, I always feel weird about it because I have a lot of I have a lot of friends with kids, and I do a regular movie night with my son, and he's 12 now, and uh, and it's always kind of iffy. Like I like to push the boundaries too because I know, like you, I saw a lot of stuff I probably maybe shouldn't have seen when I was a kid, but it really it made an impact on me, made me the film lover I am today. So I, I try not to go too nuts, but you know. Yeah, my son's seen some stuff that, you know, maybe maybe he was pushing it a little bit, you know. But he's also seen a lot of, uh, like, he loves the Marx Brothers, he loves Jerry Lewis, yeah. you know. Yeah. I think it's great. If you get to them young enough, they don't really have an imprint, and they can really adapt to anything that you're showing them and get behind it, you know. Yeah. It's now, really neat. You know, I say my, my daughter um, revolted a little bit more than my son. <laughs> she's, she's like, ah, no, daddy's, daddy's movie night. Uh. <laughs> oh, no. But uh, but she's coming around. But my son my son uh, you know he, I showed him I showed him uh, I showed him by the care of his burn pretty early and he he loved that that was that, that was wonderful but whatever that's a very odd film to be showing a <laughs> showing an eleven year old but no whatever. I love it I love the, that challenging that you're doing there I, that I, I really that's my philosophy too and I, I think it makes a difference and I think it works and I think more people should do it but you know it's hard to not for some yeah. I understand how they fear the judgment of other parents like oh my god you're scarring your child etc but you know. Teach his own. But you're not, here's my thing. How are you scaring your child? How are you, you know, really, literally, what, 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 you know, what's going to happen to them? I mean, I'm not saying show, definitely don't show Cocker Gorn shoot a 10 year old, but <laughs> what's going to happen if you show, what, what really is going to happen? Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. You know? I mean, especially if you're there to discuss if they have any questions. Correct. You know, I mean, I think Correct. that's how you handle that stuff. Anyway, um, do you have a, a film that you rate as the worst of all time? Um, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm one of the guys who wrote Ed Wood, so I, I don't really, <laughs> worth means very little to me. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I would pick something that's probably generally not on those sort of like, you know, uh, on a usual list. I would pick um, um, a John Wayne movie called Big Jim McLean, <laughs> um, which is kind of out of its mind. It's, uh, um, it's a love letter to uh, the House and American Activities Committee movie. Oh, wow. That, uh, and actually, Wayne, Wayne's quite good in it, and Jim Arness is also in it, and Jim Arness is quite good in it, too, but it's... Um, it's uh it's mind the politics are mind blowing and um uh also it's how <laughs> about incompetently done and it's very entertaining but like the, so for example the first i think the first 15 minutes are the completely crazy because the first 15 minutes have three different narrators <laughs> you know <laughs> when it opens i think with harry morgan uh that's the long time i think so i'm going to be doing, uh, doing like a poem about uh, how strong the union is and uh then it goes to sort of a, a, a generic narrator talking about the house and american activities committee and you actually go to some scenes with that where they're sort of like really making fun of uh some guy for for you know for bringing up the constitution and <laughs> and and uh, you know and uh, and then it goes to John Wayne starts narrating it then it goes back to the generic narrator then it goes back to John Wayne then it goes to the scene where Jim Arnett uh, they they have wiretapping materials and um, Jim Arnett is just like listening into the the um, the, the honeymoon couple next door to them making love, and it's all played as a big joke. Like, yeah, the government listens to your private life, and it's all funny. Wow, it's, it's pretty mind blowing. That's I got. I'm, I'm a big Wayne fan, but I've not seen that. I, I got to see that one. <laughs> right. What's also weird about that movie? I never ever found a trailer for that. I'm able to do that. This trailer from Is that movie when it got exported overseas? had the anti-communism stuff taken out of it. Wow. And I think it got retitled as marijuana. <laughs> and so instead of looking for communists, they were looking for marijuana growers. Wow. But it was dubbed. <laughs> I was going to say, so they must have looped in some... <laughs> it's hilarious. Wow. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Um, do you have a favorite What the Fuck movie? Um... Well, the problem is, my, my, once again, my, my sense of what the fuck is so, you know, sort of blown out that I don't really know what <laughs> it is anymore. Um, you know, going back to my trailers from Hells, I certainly, you know, celebrate a bunch of what the fuck kind of movies. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, certainly Rudy Ray Moore. Oh, his yeah, movies, yeah, yeah. You know, his movies are unbelievable. So, I mean, Human Tornado, which I did, uh, oh, yeah. you know, I, I, I never uh, cease to uh, have my jaw on it just on the floor when I watch Rudy. Yeah. Uh, you know, the opening of Dolomite, where I think he changes he changes his outfit like three or four different times, putting on a girdle and everything else. His <laughs> movies are out of their mind. And I love the... And like Edward, I mean, I love the sort of just the... the uh, sort of can-do spirit of them, where it's just, they're filming in the middle of a Ralph's parking lot, and it's clear there's, there's nobody got a permit. There's nobody... You know, they're just making this movie because they wanted to do it because Rudy thought he was an action hero. All the... I mean, whatever. The, those movies are really funny. They really—they're not in any way boring. They're—they're—I they're, I, I love them. There's um um in another vein. Uh, um, I'll, uh, I'm also on the board of directors for the Cine Family, which is a, oh cool. Uh, yeah. And um and the guy who runs that definitely celebrates the uh, what the fuck movies every once in a while. He had a uh, what the fuck kid movie festival. Oh yeah. And, uh, one of the films you showed was a movie called Lost in the Desert, yes. <laughs> which is also called Durky, I think. Yes. It's an early movie by the guy who directed um, The Gods Must Be Crazy. Yeah. And it's sort of a, 
sort of uh, exploitation version of Walkabout almost without the without the female nudity. And it's a similar thing where, where Nick Rogue cast his son, I think this director cast his son in the movie, but the mo- movie's is out of his mind where the kid, you know, you, you think the kid's dog has died like, you know, three or four times and the kid gets bitten by scorpions and, and they, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, I think they nicknamed it something like, you know, uh, the passion of the jerky after the passion of the passion. What this kid goes through is so unbelievable. Uh, uh, that's so that's a fun one. Yeah, no, that's great. That's one I definitely recommend to people. I'm a huge Cine Family fan too. Actually, um, I championed their programming. My wife and I were actually married there. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, we got married there uh, several years ago, uh, which was f- fantastic. Hadrian was very mm-hmm. nice and helpful. Anyway, that's yeah. Neat. He's a smart guy. Yeah, he's, he's a smart guy. That's really neat to. You know, another trailer from hell that I did was Scadoo, which is out of the yes, time. That yes, yes, it's hard yes. actually to call that entertaining or worth. <laughs> uh, if you watch, it's hard to say that one's actually worth watching. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but it's uh, that's certainly out of its mind. Yeah, and that's coming out on DVD this summer, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. um you know, and, and uh, certainly Problem Child 2 is a, is, a, is a what-the-fuck movie if there ever was one. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely, I like yep. that. Um, right. Do you have a movie that you love that everyone else hates? Um, well, the problem with the Internet is you can always find someone who loves true. it. <laughs> true. Uh, a movie that I sort of really, really, I, I really like is, a, is a, uh, that I seem to be alone on is... Um, um, uh, Four Friends. Oh, the Arthur I love, Penn, I'm with you on that one, actually. Uh, Stephen Kessich movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, once again, maybe it's because I grew up around Chicago. Once again, I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing things that sort of uh, uh, you know remind me of home a bit, and I love the way you know the the, the winter scenes in that movie, and um, you know I just think it's beautifully done, and uh, you know, I, I, and that's totally ignored. Yeah. No one ever talks about that, or they, they just lump it into uh, Arthur Penn's Misfires. But I think it's definitely a really heartfelt movie, and it's uh, you know it's written by uh, Stephen Tessich, who wrote uh, Breaking Away. Yeah. But I actually think it might be even a better script. Uh, I like that movie quite a bit. Yeah, it's a great script, and it's it's oddly forgotten. I don't get how he did. He won the Academy Award for Breaking Away, right? Yeah. And then just I feel like it's really soon after that he wrote that. Yeah. No, I think it's his, it's his next movie. Yeah. You know, and you know whatever they were. I'm sure they were given, you know, whatever. He got, uh, you know, he got Arthur Penn, and they were allowed to make a movie, a movie without stars, and you know, it had a bit of a push, but it just got totally ignored. Did he also do Eyewitness? If I'm, yes, that's a cool little movie too that another people, another one people don't talk about from his yeah. script. He's a bit of a forgotten figure, an interesting guy for sure. And uh, the the girl, you know, the girl in Poor Friends sometimes gets a bad rap, um, uh, but I actually think she's kind of good. Jody Felon. Yeah, I don't, I don't know her from anything else. Yeah, she really didn't do much of anything else. But, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, that's 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 off the top of my head. That's a that's a good one. That's a good one. I've never heard people talk about that. So, except for me and a couple friends of mine who found it in the Danny Perry uh, Guide for the Film Fanatic. Other than that, yeah. Um, uh, do you have speaking of books? Do you have a favorite film reference book or film related? Book? Well, actually, I would say the Danny Perry movies. The Danny, the, the, the Danny Perry books. The, Dan, the Danny Perry books are are uh, invaluable. I mean, you know, I think he should be given an honorary Oscar for. Oh. I think he was just one of these guys who, you know, just totally created a canon uh, that meant so much to. Uh, People of uh, my generation, you know, he 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 he, you know, he made a list of movies that we all had to see, um, and uh, his writing is so good, yeah. um, and all the books are great, and and uh, you know, it's a for me, 
I, you know, I just wish he would kept writing, you know, in terms of writing film books. I think he does sports stuff now, uh, but, you know, it's just like, he, he was such a good film writer yeah. and such a, so knowledgeable. Uh, those books are, are essential. You know, I love, um, you can get them on, uh, on uh, uh, eBay and maybe sometimes Amazon used, but there's a um, a bunch of books put out from the mid '60s to the mid '70s from the uh, the National Society of Film Critics called the, 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 this is the it's called Film like '72, '73 or Film '68, '69, Ooh. and it's just a collection of of uh, movie reviews from the films of that year. And those books are fantastic. Cool, cool. I just you know get every single one of those. Um, you know, of course, Kale is great. Yeah. Uh, there was a book that early on meant a lot to me called um, "The Great Movies" uh, by a guy named William Bear, who's also a really good film writer. So stop writing some film. Um, yeah, I think those are. Those are, but Danny Perry definitely. Yeah. Danny Perry above everything else. I, you know, He's if you look at my movies, my trails from hell, or my um, my cine, uh, cinema tech choices, you know, a lot of it goes back to uh, to Danny Perry. Yeah, I was I, I got to interview him for a magazine last year, and it was just the most amazing because he's one of my biggest personal heroes because of his yeah. books. I in college, I I got started on all this stuff, and it changed. It changed me. I, I became a film student. It just affected me and all this. So he is just such an amazing figure. And I, w- I did ask him, you know, why have you have you thought about doing cult movies for? And he, you know, I think he just said, you know, if you found the right publisher. But you know, and he read me a list of movies that he was thinking about for it and whatnot. But oh, that's cool. I would love to see him do another book. Those books, I I, I recommend them to everybody too. They're just Guide for the Film Fanatic is basically my favorite book of all time. It's just yeah. Influential. Anyway, sorry. Um, so you've done. You've talked a little bit about the uh, repertory programming you do um, around LA. Do you have any upcoming events you want to talk about? Um, my next one uh, is uh, Peter Fonda. Ooh. Um, we're showing The Hired Hand. Very cool. Um, movie he directed and uh, Vilma Zygman uh, shot. It's sort of like you know, um, I love I love things like that where you know clearly after Easy Rider he could have done absolutely anything he wanted to do and, and he chose to sort of make uh, a movie that's not anything like Easy Rider. You know, sort of made a, a nice quiet western uh, that's uh, pretty uh, pretty fantastic. So whatever that, that should be exciting to, uh, to have Peter Fonda come down. Very cool, very cool. Um, and then uh, I noticed on IMDb, um, you and you and um, Scott are, are working on the new Percy Jackson movie. It looks like. <laughs> Yeah, we're working on a bunch of things. We're writing the Adams Family as a uh, stop motion animation oh, film for Tim Burton. Cool. Uh, Tim is producing a film that we're trying to direct called Big Eyes. That's one of our, our, our biopic things, and can we're doing. Talk, um, sorry, can you talk about Big Eyes? Who it's about? Yeah, or? Big Eyes is great. Big Eyes is um, the story of Walter and Margaret Keane. Okay. Uh, there was the Big Eyed Crying Children painters in the 1960s. Ah, okay. Um, and they have this an absolutely amazing. Uh, true story behind them that's uh, uh, really about Margaret um, you know uh, sort of it's a little bit of what's love got to do with it in the, in the art world oh. the movie's kind of about Margaret's uh, growth uh, and we're really excited about that movie and it's, it's uh, we've been you know been trying to do it independently and so it's been a long haul we almost got made a couple years ago and but we're, we keep at it um and we're doing a sequel with Percy Jackson, wow. uh, which is uh, we're, uh, I think that might go into production in the fall. So very cool. Uh, we got a lot. We got lots of on our plate. 
Larry, i got to thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time here talking to me. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Okay. So, so I, I'll, I'll let you know in this post, but I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. So uh, cool. For de- Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. Thank you.